Well, hello there, and welcome, welcome to Happy Place, the show that connects the dots between the happiness of our minds, bodies, and souls. I'm Fern Cotton, and today I'm catching up with a good friend of mine. It's Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. If we're struggling to be compassionate to ourselves, the first thing I'd ask people to do is start being compassionate to other people. It's this phrase, really, which is, if you were the other person, you'd be acting in exactly the same way. If you ever find yourself getting triggered or the actions of someone else are starting to piss you off, try that phrase because every situation has got multiple realities. Choose the story that you want. The truth actually, for your happiness, I've realized this then, the truth doesn't matter. Rongan is widely regarded as one of the most influential medical doctors in the UK. He wants to change how medicine will be practised for years to come by simplifying health advice, making it more human and finding the root cause of our health problems. In his new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, he explores how happiness is literally good for your health. Mental, of course, but physical too. There are obviously so many elements that go into making each of us happy on any given day, but there are common threads we should all be conscious of. What we deem success to mean, how compassionate we are towards others and ourselves, and how authentically we show up in the world. That is a big one. Rongan came round to my house a month or two ago, and we hadn't seen each other in a while, so we had a lot to talk about, people. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay, here it is. Here's Rongan. Here's the show. Rongan, um, a joy to have you at my house. I'm very excited to be here. I, I think I've worn the wrong T-shirt, though. I don't think it matches the beautiful studio look. I like it. I like it. It's quite moody with the grey wall. It's yeah, cool. But, but I feel it should be more colourful. I'm all about yeah. colour. I'm about vibrancy. You saw me post on Instagram today. I needed a little extra boost in the sort of colour and I guess my own sort of suit of armour department to give me a boost. And I know from looking at your Instagram, you didn't sleep. I yeah, I had a bad night last night. So I'm I'm staying at a hotel in London, been there for a couple of nights doing some interviews and I woke up at three o'clock. Yeah, horrible. In a hotel room by myself, you know, wife's not here, kids not here, I've got no food in the room, I'm starving. I think I worked so much yesterday, I didn't eat properly. Yeah, I think I was just too excited as well. I had such a great day talking yesterday and I was so excited about coming on your show that 
I think it was excitement as well. Like I felt like a little kid. The adrenaline. Totally. I did try try to put some music on. I thought, okay, wrong. This will help you fall asleep. But I'm just wide awake. So um, sometimes you just have like the only way you'll fall asleep is by accepting I might not sleep. Like yeah. that's what I have in moments because I didn't sleep brilliantly last night because my nine year old's on his first overnight school trip. So last night he wasn't here, and I was sort of laying there going, is he asleep? Is he missing us? Is he worried? You know, is he asking his friends for comfort? And I just couldn't get that out of my head. And I think sometimes you have to just go, the only way I'm going to fall asleep is to accept that sleep might not come. Yeah. I mean, that's a big moment, isn't it? When your child goes for the first sleepover. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember with us, you know, it's, oh, but they're not here. You I look know. in the bedroom and they're more, oh, they're not here. You're like, so, it's, it's so it's, quiet. It's a bit sad, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, my I think my approach this morning, though, was quite different from, I think, the way I might have approached it in the past. Like, I might have stressed in the past. Like, yeah. Oh, man, I've got an important interview today with Fern. You know, it would have been better to have more sleep. You know, you're not going to be as sharp as you might have been. And I was pretty relaxed today. I just thought, well, you know what? It is what it is, you know, for whatever reason. No point worrying about it. It'll be fun hanging out with Fern. It will be what it was meant to be. Exactly. In that moment. And do you know what I mean? It's And it, that feels good, like, because that feels like progress. Yeah. Like a real measurable, real world experience where now as I think about it, I'm like, that's pretty cool, actually. Pretty cool to see that I didn't stress about it like I think I would have in the past. Some days when you haven't slept the night before, you weirdly have a f- sort of flukily good day. For yeah. some reason, you know you're sort of winging it and it's all right. Because before yeah. there was almost more pressure maybe if you had slept well, because then it had to be the most yeah. perfect day yeah. because you'd slept well and you were ready to go. So sometimes it just gives you a bit of an edge. It's a good thing. Yeah, and it <clears> and it, it is what it is, right? It is what it, it is. is, what it is. Yeah. You know, as a fellow podcast hosts, it's kind of like I've learned over the last years to just accept the conversation for what it is, right? It's a snapshot in time. It's a reflection of who I am today, who you are today. That's it, right? On a different day, at a different time on the same day, the conversation will be different. Mm -hmm. And instead of kind of fighting against that, I'm, you know, it was an it was something I had to train myself to do at the start, but now I kind of feel it's coming naturally where, okay, cool. That was the way it was meant to be and it will be what it is. And that's real life, right? You know, if you're going for authenticity in your conversations, it's like, well, you can't stage that. You know, you don't go and see a friend to catch up. And, you know, it's the same thing, right? I consider us friends now, right? You know, it's been really great to get to know you over the last couple of years. And, well, I'm coming to hang out with a friend to catch up. There just happens to be some mics running and some, cameras. and some cameras right no but you don't if you were meeting a friend in a coffee shop you wouldn't be thinking don't plan it yeah you don't plan and go oh man I didn't sleep what am I going to no, say to no. her or him what am I going to say you know I'm not going to be my best self you're going to go hey you know what I'm pretty knackered today you know whatever you know completely that's, kind of that's real I think that for both of us during our sort of podcast experience over the last however many years there, there has been some confidence building in that department that we're willing to show up and be how we are on any given day. So today, my energy's not maybe as up as it usually is, but I'm fine with it. And actually, when I um, came to your house a few months ago to, co- to go on your podcast, I was in grief. My cat had died literally 12 hours before. Yeah. Um, I still felt that it was really important to show up because I thought it would be really interesting to 
for myself as an experiment to see, well, how will I be in the context of being in front of cameras and microphones, but in a very raw state and not try and cover it over and just show up as I am to really encourage other people to do the same in their working life, in their relationships, dynamics, rather than sort of suppress feelings and cover things over, but to show up as you are that day. And, you know, I'm very lucky that it was you that was on the receiving end of that sort of emotion and energy because I knew that you you would understand it and you would very sensitively sort of talk to me. But I think we all need to push ourselves to do that a bit more, show up how we are on any given day in any dynamic. We definitely do. And I think many of us struggle to do that. I struggled to do that. I would say for much of my life, I struggled to do that because I feel for so much of my life, you know, I I had taken on this idea that I had to be a certain way in order to get love and acceptance. And I think many people feel that. Yeah. They feel actually the way I am is not good enough. So I have to be someone I'm not. And actually... It's really, really toxic on many levels. One way that I think we don't realize it's toxic is if you show up as someone other than you and you get validation for that version of yourself, now you've got a big problem Mm. because there's a fake version of you that's getting love and attention, right? So you've created what I, the way I think about it is you've created this like fault line in your being and who you are. There's who you are and there's who you are being. And the wider that gap gets, the more frustration you're going to have in your life, the more compensations you're going to have. It's going to affect your health, your happiness, your relationships, how you feel about yourself. And also, you know, as a doctor, where's my bias here? My bias is actually that's affecting your behaviors. You're coming in to see me as a patient with anxiety, right? Okay, great. Let me try and help you understand that. Let's try and figure out where is that coming from in your life? And actually, I've gone through a process over the last few years, you know, with my medical hat on of thinking, okay, what's the root cause of this patient's complaints? What's the root cause? And I said for many years, it's lifestyle, right? I've said that 80% of what we see as doctors, me as a GP, is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. So that's not me putting blame on anyone. That's me saying, hey, look, life is tough. Yeah, Life is there's pressure, there's stress, you know, we're, we're having all kinds of pressure at work. It's never been easier to eat pretty crappy foods yep. that's very, very tasty as it is now. We're sleep deprived. Um, we don't have time to nurture our relationships. We've moved away from family and friends, right? There's all kinds of pressures. But nonetheless, the way we're living is leading to the bulk of the symptoms I think we as doctors now see. And actually, one pill for every ill just frankly doesn't work very well in those cases. But then over the last few years, I've been thinking, okay, well, lifestyle is important, but is there something that's more important than lifestyle, right? even more upstream in terms of a root cause? And I think there is. And I, I really think it is happiness and our mental well-being. So when we feel good in ourselves, when we like who we see in the mirror, when we don't allow the thoughts and the actions of other people to overly affect us, well, this could be tricky, right? When we get to that point, or the better we get at that, the better we feel. And then what happens when you feel better? You don't compensate for those problems or that hole you have in your heart with your behaviors, right? You don't, you know, if you feel really good in yourself, and you feel deeply happy, 
not kind of sugar-coated happy, deeply happy, you have less of a need to, you know, dive into those sweets or biscuits in the afternoon. You have less of a need to drown your loneliness and your discontent with half a bottle of wine in the evening. And that's my other real frustration with the way we're going as doctors, Fern, is that, like, I really feel that, you know, even with public health messaging about things like alcohol, right, I think the reason it doesn't work is it's so dry. Mm. Like, it's like... We, we recommend you don't drink more than this amount of units per week. I mean, what does that mean, right? Yeah. It's factual, it's logical, <clears throat> but it doesn't connect with your heart. And also, the other thing it doesn't do, it doesn't help people understand, like, why do they have that behavior in the first place? You know, January is a classic time for this, right? Everyone can give up anything they want for two yeah. weeks in January. Whatever you want, two weeks, no problem. But then bit by bit, it creeps back in because you've, you've tried to use willpower to solve a problem that's come from an underlying feeling of lack in some area in your life, right? And so we've got to really understand, all of us, myself included, that our behaviors, they all serve a purpose. They all serve a role. Like, you're never going to change it. You're never going to change it in the long term unless you take a bit of time to figure out what role this is playing in my life. Yeah, and what is that root cause? Like, why are your actions stemming from this place and what is it? And, you know, you say... In your new book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, that, you know, you've seen so many patients over the years that have come to you with seemingly healthy lifestyles where they eat well, they exercise, but they're still, they have ailments, there's still ill health there. And the conclusion is that there's this lacking or this feeling or a hole that they're trying to fill. Does happiness, and I mean like true happiness, you talk about core happiness, does that always equal health? That's a great question. Does it always equal health? I don't think I can say it always equals health. I don't think I can say definitively 100% of the time for every single person that will equal health. Of course, there are some uh, genetic things that may predispose you to certain things, just to be super clear. But regarding the lifestyle-driven illnesses and complaints that most of us, many of us are suffering from, I would say it will definitely improve your health. Wherever you currently are, if you can improve your levels of core happiness, if you can improve your mental well-being, I actually think it will absolutely lead to better physical health in the majority of cases. You know, there's a lot of powerful research that supports this. You know, there's very, very strong links now between happiness and health. When you are happier, you are healthier. One reason is, as we've discussed, because you make better lifestyle choices naturally, right? Naturally. You know, so many of the behaviors I had potentially tried to reduce or get rid of for years, they've they've mostly gone now, but not because I've tried anymore. It's because actually I've repaired that deep hole inside. Not maybe not completely, but it's a lot smaller than it used to be. Mm, yeah, same, same. And here. so I no longer need those behaviours, right? I don't need to engage in them. So that's one component. But the other component is, and there was this great study with nuns. It's called, I think it was called the Nun Study. You know, <laughs> pre- pretty pretty amazing name for a study with nuns, you know? <laughs> I think it's called the Nun Study. <laughs> that, that, that could be the fact that I was up since three, you know, in terms of my articulation of that. But, you know, well, let's go with it. Um, this... <laughs> This gorgeous study with nuns, which basically they tracked these nuns throughout the course of their life. And what was really amazing, Fern, is that 
they all had the same lifestyle. So when they accounted for lifestyle, their diets, their um, exercise habits, their sleep, even then, the happier nuns lived longer. Uh. They were healthier. Right? So I think it's reasonable now for us to conclude that independently, happiness, true happiness, what yeah. I call core happiness, yeah. will make most of us significantly healthier and it makes it easier. So what is core happiness? Let's break this down. Explain what your definition of that is. Happiness is, I think, a really interesting term and concept. I think it's almost becoming unfashionable now to talk about happiness. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all I talk about is uh, happiness. And I'm saying that on happy place, right? <laughs> but but I think the reason, like, so I think people think we shouldn't be, uh, that shouldn't be the goal anymore. Yeah. A lot of people are saying that. A lot of people are saying uh, it's about meaning and purpose, not happiness. I actually disagree with that. I think that's a partial truth. S- same. I feel that in my heart and I don't even know why. I feel that's yeah. wrong. Well, I've, I've really tried to unpick that this year when writing the book because I think... I was trying to go, why is it that so many people are anti-happiness now? And I think it's because we misunderstand what it is. We think it's that billboard image, right, where it's the happy family smiling on the beach and uh, the ocean's there behind them, right? That's happiness. Well, is it? That's a pleasurable experience. That can play uh, a role in a happy life. But I don't think that's happiness in and of itself. No, it's not inner happiness. It's not inner happiness, right? So... I was trying to th- I was trying to come up with a model of happiness that not only helps people understand it, but also they can use with their day to day life. That they can use it and go, oh, oh, right, happiness is a skill. Like happiness is something I can get better at. You know, happiness is not a destination. It's 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 a journey. It's a direction that you choose to take in life. It's not that final destination. That's why I think we get it wrong, right? So. Core happiness to me is, is I want people to think of it like a, a three-legged stool, right? So it's a stool, and the three legs are alignment, contentment, and control, right? So alignment, what, what does alignment mean? When I say alignment, what I mean is when your inner values and your external actions are the same. Yeah. When the person who you really want to be inside and the person you are actually being out in the world are one and the same. That's when you are aligned. So anything you do in life that makes you more aligned is going to strengthen that leg of the stool and it means you are becoming happier, right? So that's one component. But it's not everything that's. It's one component. The next one is contentment. So contentment is about calm and feeling at peace in the moment, but also with your life and your decisions, right? That's what contentment is. And then the third one is control. And I... You know what it's like when you're writing? I wrestled with this word control for ages. I thought, is this the right word? Is this going to get misconstrued? Does control, does it hold true in every situation? That's that's when I thought I'd crack this model. I thought, I think this holds true in every single situation. And when I say control, I don't mean I want people to be able to control the world. The world is inherently uncontrollable. Yeah. But what can you do to give yourself a sense of control? Right? What are the small things you can do each day that give you a sense of control? Because we know from the research, right, people who have a sense of control over their lives, they're healthier, they're happier, they have better relationships, they have longer relationships, they earn more money. All the things that people are craving, you get it when you have that sense of control. So, you know, 
these are the three things that make up what I call core happiness as opposed to what I call junk happiness, right? So junk happiness is the opposite. Junk happiness is what I think many people think happiness is, Uh. right? It's that the feeling you might get after having a chocolate bar or having a gamble or... Um, getting a new pair of shoes. New pair of shoes. Yeah. And to be clear, right, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with junk no. happiness. It's if you do it, if you engage in junk happiness too often, right, or I think if you mistake that for core happiness, that's when the problem lies. And I think for people to really understand the difference, you know, I use the example of drinking alcohol, right? So it's in the intention. So if you go to a bar, or let's say you go out for a meal with a close friend and you want half a glass of red wine to enjoy it with your friend and bond. Okay, that is one thing. If you need half a bottle of wine each night to numb your loneliness or the fact that you hate your job, it's the same drug, but it has a completely different effect. It's got a very different intention. And we've all got a go-to junk happiness habit. You know, it can be anything. You know, Instagram, shopping, pornography, which is a massive issue these days. Right? There's so many things. And you know what I want people to really understand is core happiness is a skill, right? You can do a small thing every day and you are moving towards it. And you know, Fern, can I just address another myth about happiness, yeah, I think, please. which it's about this kind of big smile that we have on our face all the time. Complete nonsense, right? You came to my house in a very trying time for you, right? Your cat was of 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, she had died the day before. Yeah. I mean, how are you doing with all that, by the way? Is it good? You know, I think what I let myself do that week was really grieve. And occasionally, like I said to you on the podcast, people might think this is disproportionate to the situation because it's a cat. But I felt it and I just let myself sit in it. And it was probably the best thing I could have done because I had a whole week where. You know, I cried on the train home from your house and then I went for walks the next day and cried. And I'm not saying this for sympathy. I had contentment within that experience. It felt like I was connecting to her. I felt connected to life. I felt, I just felt very alive. I wasn't trying to numb it. I was very content in it. And I know with other forms of grief, that might not be possible because it's too awful and yeah. too confronting but I was definitely able to do that that week and, I, and now I feel you know you, you're left with all the lovely memories yeah. and the good bits but I'm not still in that space you know as I hear you explain that it's fascinating if I put that through the model of the core happiness stool I think the way you processed your grief and your emotions that week is absolutely strengthening your core happiness. Mm. I think it's two legs. You mentioned contentment, right? So you felt content and calm and at peace in that in in the that sort of probably rich cauldron of emotions that yeah, were coming up, right? Yeah. But you also aligned, right? So you don't have to have a smile on your face to have this deep level of core happiness. Mm. Right. If you came on my show and had a big smile on your face and were pretending that everything was okay. Here's the problem. On the inside, you're crying, you're really upset, you feel sad. And on the outside, you're trying to pretend that that's not happening. Yeah. Now, there may be a role for that in certain instances in life, but you were sad, but you were aligned. Yeah. Right? And so you, you know were happy. What? You <coughs> were Rangan, actually happy. I spent years of my career not aligning at all I would show up feel like I was literally falling apart inside but be on the radio going hey welcome to the show 
And it felt horrible, jarring, edgy, not great. And, you know, although I probably wouldn't go back and do it much differently because nobody necessarily wants to hear every day someone coming on saying they feel awful. But I think I could have met myself in the middle somewhere and been a little bit more honest and a bit more honest with myself. And I guess the way that all of us do this, and and I think most of us have done this at some point, is of course on social media, where, you know, luckily there are lots of people on social media now who will show up and say, I've got anxiety or I'm not feeling good or whatever. But a lot of the time we are still looking to those people that that their lives look so shiny and perfect. And even though I know all this stuff and I write about it and I talk about (laughs) it, I will still go on and sometimes see other people and go, oh my, how are they doing? They've got everything so sorted and they look amazing and everything's going brilliantly. And I'm like, I've got so much laundry downstairs that is crumpled in a basket and I haven't got any food at the moment. I need to go and get cat food after I've done this podcast. Like Everything feels a little bit like, am I going to make it to the end of the day and have done everything? And I feel a bit, and it's, you know, we all fall into that. And we might have also portrayed ourselves in that way, been on Instagram to hopefully have people give us validation. So we've put on a better version of ourselves to get that like. Yeah, this in particular, I think, relates to what we were saying about alignment. You know, I've been thinking about the authenticity recently. And, you know, I I wrote a section in the book that I, I really love about authenticity. I spent ages thinking about it. And I think at the moment... Even the concepts of authenticity has been hijacked. Yeah. So you have what I call performative authenticity, which actually is not authenticity. Yeah. As opposed to true authenticity. So, and you actually really do, we can all fall into this trap on social media because it kind of rewards performative authenticity. So if you pretend to be someone you're not and you get validation for that, you've got a big problem. Massive problem. Right? You've got a big problem. And there are actually many, many, you know, in inverted commas, influencers who are well known to be crying on the inside, literally struggling, because the image that they are portraying is nothing like their life. And you can know this stuff. I can know it. You can know it. We, we can still write fall about into it. it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, and we can fall into thinking everyone's got a better life than us. Yeah. It's called, I think, perfectionist presentation. It's We have this tendency to, you know, does someone want to see the laundry overflowing? in the basket and the mess in the kitchen. Do, do you know, is that what people want to see? Well, I don't know. Like, do we want to post that? It's it's really tricky, isn't it? Because mm. that would I be like real. I do a bit of both, I, I think. But the really interesting thing about that section of your book was something that, that I've given a lot of time to sort of privately. Maybe I haven't voiced it as much. And that is the notion of authenticity. Because sometimes we think that's a fixed thing. Like, I know who I am yeah. and I will always show up as that person, which seems very dead-ended, whereas surely we should always have a curiosity about, well, who the, who the hell yeah. am I? Like, we don't really know, do we? We don't know. We did know, right? I passionately believe that most of us as children yeah. knew, right? We've all got a memory from childhood. For me, it's kind of, I don't know, four or five years old, on the grass in our garden, playing cricket with my brother, like... You know, I think saluting the the trees because I think I scored a fifty. <laughs> you know, uh, but what was I? I was in the moment. Yeah, I was present. I wasn't fretting about the future. I wasn't worrying about the past. I was just there, right? Mm. I was being who I was. And the more I think about core happiness, the more I think about this is frankly just a journey back inwards to where we once were that we have somehow lost by society, by culture 
by conditioning. And so I think we we all have it within us somewhere. Yeah. Like we had it and we can get back to it. But that's liberating. Rather than go, I've got to find my authentic self. We just have to peel back the layers and recover it. It's not about getting yeah. something new. It's about going backwards to find it. Yeah, it is. And like this this whole idea of authenticity, right? So what does it mean on the surface? It's being yourself. Right? Yeah. It sounds like the easiest thing to do. Just be yourself. Okay, but what if you don't know who you are anymore? What if you spent so long, like me, performing, trying to be somebody other than you are yeah. in order to get love and validation and care? And, you know, I'm very happy to talk about it later. I'm pretty sure I know where that comes from in my childhoods. You know, it's something I adapted very early and it's only in the last few years I'm learning to let go of it. And with that letting go comes this lightness and this freedom and this calm, which feels so good. But authenticity, and the example I use in the book, I think is, I hope is a nice way for people to understand it. Let's say you're in a restaurant and you've ordered a meal and the meal comes late and they haven't made it very well. And someone was rude when they gave it to you, right? And you feel really frustrated and annoyed. You're really hungry. It's cold. It doesn't taste good. The service wasn't very good. And you've been looking forward to it all week. You're feeling pissed off and irritated, right? So your authentic self is annoyed. So here's the question. When the waiter or waitress comes next to the table, is being authentic expressing that annoyance and irritability and frustration to that waiter or waitress who probably had nothing to do with it? They were probably just doing their job and bringing whatever was there out. Is that being authentic? I'm not sure it is because if you go back to values, and this is where you understand what your alignment is, you go back to your values. If one of your values is kindness, being rude to the waiter and waitress isn't in keeping with your values. So it's like, well, who is my authentic self? Is it me or am I, do I have to act in a certain way to be accepted? So it gets confusing, it's so right? Confusing. So uh, I literally, for those four pages in the book, it took me four weeks to crack this, right? I couldn't quite make sense of it. And the way I think about it now, it's about integrity. So I want people, whenever they think about authenticity, I want them to think about integrity. And essentially what I'm saying is, know how you really are feeling, right? But also choose to act as the person you want to be. Mm. And I think sometimes there's a subtle difference there. It's like, it's not about forgetting who you are. It's recognizing, okay, I'm, I'm sad. I'm pissed off. I was really looking forward to this meal. But I'm also going to act with respect and integrity to people because I value kindness. The problem is, and this is where I think fake it till we make it gets a bit mixed up. I'm not against that in all areas. But if you're constantly faking it, you forget who you are. If you're constantly being a people pleaser like me, although I, I would describe myself as a people pleaser in recovery now. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, Well, you don't know who you are because all you've ever done is do things that other people want, right? So that's no good either. You you know, sure, everyone loved me, right? Rongan's really cool. He's trustworthy. You know, he's never causes a fuss. Okay, great. But in the meantime, I'm not having my own meads nets. So it's a combination. There's a subtlety. And, you know, my conclusion is, Fern, that you can only become the person who you want to be when you're able to accept and acknowledge the person who you currently are now. Yeah, yeah. Acceptance is such a huge part of it. There was a line that jumped out of me in your book. It's, I think, one of the most important parts of the book because we could all set off reading your new book going, right, I know what I need to do now. But unless you've got this fundamental in place, none of it's going to work. 
And I'll read the line. I think I wrote it down verbatim. Um, it's just not possible to achieve long time health and happiness if you hate yourself. I mean, it's so simple, but that's that's it. If you don't like yourself, you can drink all the green juice. You can try and be kinder. You can try and work out who the hell you are, but it's not going to stick. It's not going to stick. Yeah. And I reckon 99% of people listening to this, myself included, have a problem with this. You know, I will go, I will sort of have undulating acceptance and love of myself and then it will very quickly dwindle when something goes wrong or I'm feeling a bit flat. Like I had it earlier this week just going, I just feel like nothing is sort of going how I want it to and I've lost that sort of manifesting element of things that I'm usually really into and then I can quickly go into self-loathing a bit. Oh, I'm not being the parent I want to be and when we go back to that, looking at that leg of the stool and looking at alignment, when we know we're a bit off, it's so easy to slip into self-hatred or self-loathing. So... How do we start to cultivate that? Whether it's acceptance as the first sort of rung on the ladder or we're moving up to liking or loving ourselves, how do we cultivate that? The first step is awareness. Like this is probably one of the most important lessons I've learned in over 20 years of seeing patients. You're never going to make a long-term change to your behavior until you become aware. Right, it's what I was hinting at before when we, you know, we white knuckle it for two or three weeks, we cut out the sugar, we cut out the booze, whatever but it comes back because we haven't addressed the root cause. So even the awareness that actually I'm not that kind to myself, I talk to myself really negatively in my head or even out loud, right? That's a very powerful first step. It doesn't mean you can necessarily change it straight away, but even having that awareness, I didn't know that for years that I did that, right? Most of my adult life, I didn't realize I did that. When you're away, you're like, oh, because when you can catch yourself, then you can start to change. So why is it that so many of us don't like ourselves? I think it comes, not I think, I know that for most of it comes down to our childhoods, Mm. right? So if I could share my story here, I remember coming back from school as a kid, if I got 19 out of 20 in a test, my parents would say, why didn't you get 20? Right, if I got 99%, like, okay, why don't you get 100? That was my reality. That was my norm, right? I didn't know anything different. But over the last few years, as I've gone inside and not looked to the world around me to be responsible for my happiness and looked inward to go, okay, come on, let's figure this out. Let's figure out why you get triggered in certain ways. Let's figure out why you have these patterns. I'm like, oh, wow. I, at a very young age, took on the belief that, It's only when I win and I'm the best and I succeed that I get love and validation. So I internalize that. That becomes my entire life, right? I have this, I have had this really strong attachment to success and being number one, right? And on the outside, it can look as though you're doing well, yeah, right? But on the inside, it's like, you know, I know Pippa, good friend of mine was on the show recently. Yeah, Dr. Pippa Grange. You know? Pippa talks about winning deep or winning shallow. I've won shallow for a lot of my life. And it's interesting, you know, as I was unpicking this for this book, I I went around to mums. Like I see mum most days. I help look after her, help give her breakfast, either me or my brother. And um, I said, hey, mum, can I ask you, why did you say that to me when I was a kid? What? I mean, how did that go down? That's a scary conversation. Um, Well, you know what? I've done a lot of... um, shifting in my relationships over the last few years it was pretty hard at first with various members of my family initially because as you go on this self-growth journey Mm -hmm. you realize how many 
you know, I think I think in my family we didn't know what boundaries were in the past. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't even think that word made sense to no. anyone in our family. I don't think many families previously no. have had that, or maybe still don't. It's quite a new concept that's a very healthy one to have. For sure. And new. then when you start putting up those boundaries, it can be uh, very triggering in all kinds of ways. So I've gone through that process and now I have nothing but love and compassion for my parents, right? They were doing the best that they could. And I, you know, I'd like to think they brought me up pretty well, right? So I'm really proud of my parents. I dearly love them. And I didn't charge mum in an angry or triggered way like I might have done a few years ago, <laughs> right? I was like, hey, mum, look, I, I went with this sort of kind, compassionate inquiry as to, hey, mum, why? And she said, well, I just wanted you to be the best that you could. I knew you were capable. I didn't have the same stuff with your brother. And there's something about the immigrant mentality here, Fern, that, you know, people like my mum and dad who came over in the 60s and 70s to the to the UK, they did face a lot of discrimination. They did face a lot of racism and problems and, and ceilings at work that they couldn't overcome. And I totally get it now, right? They didn't want their kids to have to go through that. So, and you'll see this in lots of immigrant families. Certainly I can speak for Indian immigrant families. Education is so valued, right? It's because, well, one of the reasons is, I remember my dad saying, said, this is how you get ahead. Come top of the class, go to a good uni, get a good job. And then you won't face the problems that we faced. And um, this goes to a wider point for me, Fern, which is perspective, right? So we all see the world through our lens. But every situation has, has multiple realities. So mum and dad were trying to be great parents. With their understanding of the world, they weren't trying to, um, you know, give me this uh, impression that no, I'm not. not good enough. They were trying to make sure I can of succeed course. in the world and be happy and have a family and support them. Right. But if you walk around the other side of that story, little Rongan subconsciously takes on this belief. I'm not good enough in who I am. I have to be someone else. And I think this is the perspective that we all need, right? And if we're struggling to be compassionate to ourselves, right, the first thing I'd ask people to do is start being compassionate to other people. My, my absolute favorite chapter in the book is chapter five, right? When it's called Seek Out Friction. And this, the ideas in this one have probably had the most impact on my life, my health, my happiness, my relationships. And it's this idea that, it's this phrase really, which is, if you were the other person, you'd be acting in exactly the same way. Mm. When you really, really sit with that thought, what, what I'm trying to say with that phrase is, if you were that person, if you had their childhoods, if you had their parents, if you had their bullying at school, if you had their first toxic boss, right, whatever, if you had their life, you would absolutely be acting in the same way. Yeah. And if you think you wouldn't, I... I very humbly uh, invite you to consider that this may be your ego talking. Mm -hmm. and, and that phrase has changed everything because if you ever find yourself getting triggered or the actions of someone else are starting to piss you off or you think, God, I can't believe they acted like that, try it. Try that phrase because every situation has got, has got multiple realities. Right? They did this study on, on football fans. Is it called the football study? You know what? I don't know the name to my hand. I'm going to look it up afterwards and find the name and then I can uh, maybe I'll record it. We can drop it in the actual official name. But, um, you know, essentially there was an incident that happened on the pitch and they interviewed both sets of fans afterwards. Same incident. Everyone can see the incident. Two completely different perspectives yeah. on what happens. Right. So what does that tell us? 
it's perspective. Everything mm-hmm. is perspective. What does that tell us about our own relationships? If uh, two partners have an argument, let's say the, the typical marital argument, the oh, stereotypical one. I can draw one of those circumstances up pretty quickly, Rongan. Right. <laughs> so in that situation, there's two realities, mm-hmm. right? You will have a view of what happened. Yeah. Your husband will have a view of what happened. And a lot of the time, they will be different. Yeah. And so when you really but get... I'm still right, right? We still right. Well, <laughs> exactly. But the, the point I'm trying to make is, is once... I, I really think this is life-changing. Yeah. It certainly has been for me. It helps you be compassionate yep. in every moment of your life. Someone cuts you up in the car. Oh, okay. What might be going on in their life? Mm-hmm. Instead of going, I can't believe they did that. You know, they should know better. They shouldn't be on the roads. You know, that. You know, you can tell yourself that story, but what does that story do for you? I say in every situation, choose a happiness story. Yeah. Right? You can do that. It's a skill. You can get better at it. You can practice. But it could be, oh, you know what? Maybe his daughter had earache last night and was up and he's knackered. Maybe, you know what? There's a lot of financial pressure at home. You know what? He thinks he's going to lose his job. So he's just trying to get to work so he doesn't, his boss doesn't find out. Whatever it is, right? March 2020, lockdown comes in. Everyone's going nuts about toilet roll, right? I think this is really, again, another really nice way for people to think. Like, what were you thinking at the time, if people can remember? Were you annoyed? Were you frustrated? Were you seeing images on the news and getting really quite triggered? Well, let's think about some happiness stories there. Well, maybe that empty supermarket shelf was every shopper that day just took one extra pack because they were a bit scared about the uncertainty. Okay, that could have happened. Maybe it was no one person grabbing them all yeah okay maybe one person went in and actually they're a carer for four families and they've got elderly people they're looking after and they thought you know what this is going to be really really problematic i need to get loads maybe someone's suffering with ulcerative colitis and they have diarrhea 20 times a day yeah and they're like oh man if there's no toilet roll this can be super embarrassing for me yeah let's go even one step further maybe someone thought i'm going to buy a hoard and sell on ebay but maybe They've got no money. Mm-hmm. Their life's crap. They don't feel they've got any opportunities. And they thought, this is a great opportunity for me to make some money. Yeah. Right? Choose the story that you want. It doesn't matter. The truth, actually, for your happiness, I've realized this, Fern, the truth doesn't matter. It's the story you put onto it. And, like, one of the most powerful conversations I've had on my podcast was with this lady called Edith Eager. Yeah. And I don't know if you've spoken to her, but if I you haven't, haven't, but I know, you, I know her story. Do. It's amazing. It's, it's, yeah. It changed my life. When I spoke <clears> to her last year, she's she was 93 years old. And just to briefly summarize, when she was 16 years old, she said to me, you know, it was the morning. I was really excited. I was due to go for a date with my boyfriend in the evening. And later that morning, they get a knock on the door. And basically, her mum and dad, her and her sister, get taken to Auschwitz in a train. Within a couple of hours of getting there, her parents are murdered. I think that day or the next day, she gets asked to dance for some of the guards. And she said a few things in that conversation with me that I think about every day. One of them is, she said, Rongan, the last thing my mum said to me was, Edie, nobody can take from you what you put inside your mind. So when she was dancing, because she had to dance, so she danced. She said, I wasn't dancing in that room in Auschwitz in my mind, I was dancing in Budapest Opera House. There was an orchestra playing. I had a beautiful dress on. There was a, a full house right in her mind, right? So that's what she did in that moment. Then she said, while I was in Auschwitz, I wasn't the prisoner. I looked at the prison guards. I thought, they're the ones who are not free. I am free. 
right? I am free. They're the ones who are not living their life and are trapped. And this is the phrase, right, that I, I'm pretty sure not a day goes by where I don't think about this. And she said, Rongen, listen, I've been through the hell of Auschwitz, but I can tell you this, the greatest prison you will ever live in is a prison you create inside your mind. Yeah. And what I take from that is if Edith Eager in the absolute hell and torment of Auschwitz after her parents have been murdered, right? If in that moment she is able to choose a different story, right? Choose a different perspective. Well, I kind of humbly suggest that most of us in our lives, we could probably do that as well. We can. We forget we've got the propensity to do so because we are so used to, it's a habit, you know, habitually we go to the negative story, often putting ourselves as a victim, you know, not in drastic ways. It could just be like the person that's cut you up is an arsehole and they're impacting your day negatively. We're so used to doing that. We forget there's another option altogether. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Just rewinding slightly, you know, you said... Well, what happens in those moments? We all know, but we dismiss this on a minute-by-minute basis. Whenever we feel tense or stressed or we've chosen the negative story, if we've got mental things, cognitively we're feeling stressed and awful, it's going to affect our bodies. And we dismiss this. We go, no, no, it's just thought, it's just my brain. And then when you get an ailment, you think, well, what's going on there? What's what's wrong with me? How have I picked up this achy arm or whatever? My back's hurting. You know, it's the same thing, cognitive to physical manifestation. It's all the same thing, but we dismiss this we, we totally on a do. daily basis. I'd, I'd even go as far as say the medical profession dismiss this. Mm. Right? It's not commonly known. We're not taught about this. But more and more, as I look at my patients, our emotional well-being, how we think about ourselves, how we talk about ourselves, man, that influences, in, on some level, most of the patients I see. There's so much research on this, an inability to forgive right? Holding on to hostility, anger. These are associated with negative health outcomes, autoimmune disease, cancer, heart disease, strokes, because this emotional tension, you are literally holding on. It changes your physiology. It changes who you are. Why, Why is a doctor like me writing a book on happiness? Because happiness equals health in so many situations. And that negative voice in our head, when we say, oh, you idiot, you loser, can't believe you did that. Hey, man, I know that's so fun because that's how I used to talk to myself. Yeah, we, right? we all do it. We all do but it. But here's the thing. We think it's trivial. We think it doesn't matter. Actually, Professor Kristen Neff, who's probably one of the world's uh, leading experts in self-compassion, she has shown that when we do that, we activate our stress response. Yeah. So your body on some level thinks it's running away from a tiger every time you say, oh, you stupid idiot. You lose it. Now, going back to your question, what can people do? Check yourself. First of all, try and be compassionate to other people. Try and use those tools that I mentioned. If you struggle at first, keep practicing. It gets easier. I can do that now, Fern. 
pretty automatically. Yeah. Right, but I've been practicing for about four years. It's practice. It's practice. It's a skill. We Happiness don't want to hear skill. exactly. We don't want to hear that maybe discipline's involved. That, that that there's a sort of skill set to it. We think it's kind of gifted to the remarkable few or it's you know exclusive to a certain group of people but if you know it's a skill it's liberating but you do have to put the work in you've got to put the work in and how are we meant to know it as a skill right when did we learn the skill of happiness no we did not i didn't learn it as a kid i didn't learn it at school i didn't learn it from my parents i certainly did not learn it from society which gave me a very different idea of what happiness is which is you know, better job, better, you know, more money, a nicer phone, a nicer car. Not that I care about cars, but, you know, whatever people do care about. We sign this, what I call the adulthood contract, and we forget what it truly is. But it is a skill that you can practice and you get better at it. Mm. Like the thing I do on a daily basis to to kind of what, what I think all this sort of comes under for me when choose a different story you know, make that person a hero is another way I talk to people about it. In any situation like where you get triggered, how can you make them a hero? Right? It's such a, I think it's such a beautifully simple sentiment that it changes how you think about how can I, what story can I write that makes them a hero? So I now seek out social friction every day. And it, it used to really bother me. I used to get really triggered. Why are they saying this? Right? I mean, you've been in the media for years, Fern. When, when my first you know, when my uh, BBC One show, Doctor in the House, came out in 2015, oh man, I was so proud of what I'd done. I was so proud of helping all these families either reverse their illnesses or get better in six weeks using just lifestyle. And then the 1% who didn't like it and would attack you on Twitter, and uh. I was like, I, I don't understand. I, don't, I really don't understand. I've just helped people. I've not used a single drug, right? What I, I, I really struggled. I wouldn't sleep. I found it really, really hard. Whereas now... Like, I feel very calm with it most of the time, most of the time. And it comes from this idea that you can use social friction as a teacher for yourself. Yeah. Right. Just as just as if if you want to get, you know, if you want to get stronger biceps, go to the gym, do bicep curls every day. Right. Or do them at home in your kitchen, wherever you want to do it. You will get stronger biceps. Right. If you start to use social friction, your ability to interact with the world will get stronger. It will get better. So anytime I get triggered, right? let's say, for example, someone says something nasty or negative about me on Instagram, let's say. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often anymore. But let's say that was to happen. One option is... God, what an idiot. I can't be God, they did not read the post. They did not read what I actually said. Or, you know, you could go down that story or I can go, okay, what? I could, I could literally turn the ship around, look in the mirror and go, okay, Wangan, why are you getting triggered here? Yeah, use it as a mirror. Use it as a mirror because it's so powerful. Is it because I got up at three o'clock last night and so I'm a bit emotionally fragile? Okay, cool. If it's that, maybe I need to think about an early night tonight, right? Or not drink as much coffee today so I can sleep better. Okay, is there an element of truth to it? Ah, you know what, they've got a point there. I I could have put it like that. Yeah, okay, I can learn something here, Yeah. right? Or am I pretty happy with what I said? And actually, actually, I think this is a reflection on you. Of them. Yeah, and you're yeah. really struggling. You're probably having a bad day and you're taking it out on me. That's okay. That's cool. I'm okay with that. You don't know me. This is my profile. You sort of, you know, and what it does, and this is the goal, I think in all my work now, if I look back over the last few years, certainly my public facing work, but I guess it's the same with all my patients as well, is I want to empower everyone every patient, every reader of my books, every listener of my podcast, I want to empower them to feel that they can be the architect of their own health and happiness. If you are waiting for the world around you to act a certain way in order for you to be happy, 
you've got a big problem. Yeah. You could be waiting a long time. So I want I want to put people in control so they can be the master of their happiness. And I really feel that's one of the most practical tools I use to develop the skill of happiness. And it can be hard sometimes. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying this is easy. Just If it was it. easy, you wouldn't have written a book. I wouldn't have written books. We'd exactly. all be doing it. It's hard. It's hard. But I don't think there's a better... I don't think there's a better path you'll take no. because the freedom you get on the other side, you, you know, you, basically every day is a school day. Every day, and every time someone frustrates you, you're like, oh my God, this is great. I get to learn and you're processing stuff. So I generally, and what what I've certainly found, and I'm interested if this is the same for you, that because of how fragile the view I used to have of myself was, I needed external validation. Oh yeah. Right, so when you get it, great. But when someone says something negative, you go to the other extreme where you feel worthless. and It's you... fragile. It's yeah. such a fragile way of doing And you dive things. into these junk happiness habits. Yeah. For me, I used to gamble quite a lot in my 20s. You know, I used to love gambling on anything or going to the casino. What's really interesting for me, I don't gamble. I haven't gambled in years. But I haven't tried. I haven't tried to stop. I've just healed the hole inside me. So I no longer, I no longer need it. Mm. Like my mate's like, come on, look, I'm like... Guys, let's just play. I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm like that with drink. You know, like I I didn't ever have a drink problem, but I used to definitely drink a lot to sort of feel okay in a social setting. And now I probably have like two drinks a year. Yes, and I cannot even finish those. Because I'm thinking, oh, I'm spinning out, man. I need to go home now. I'm getting really sleepy. I just don't need to do it. And actually my friends know I'll probably leave by 10 p.m. because I want to get home and get a good night's sleep. And that's just who I am and I'm fine with it. But I think so much of this, whether it's, negative self-talk or looking at a different perspective goes back to something we talked about sort of nearer the start of this chat, which is the confusion between core happiness and success. I think it's still one of the biggest problems that we have. And society, unfortunately, supports that myth hugely with advertising, how the media works. And you know, maybe we've played into it at some point because people see that we're doing something we love and we're out there doing our thing. I, and I know you're the same, definitely try to paint a very honest picture of, yeah. yes, I'm very, very happy in the job that I do and I feel so privileged to do this most days, but it does not negate all the other life stuff that's going on and I still have to do that work. And and you share, because you know what, if I, in an unorthodox way, now skip right to the end of the book, way before we wrap up, but we go to the end of the book and look at you saying, happiness is reachable for all of us, it's accessible for everybody there'll definitely be people listening to this going not me yeah no way no way well that's that doesn't apply to me look look at my life it's a mess look yeah. at what's happened to me in the past it's been terrible there's no way it's in reach for me but you're saying it definitely is and i think a lot of it is to do with how we view success and what success means and you you paint a beautiful picture a very raw story i know for you to tell cuz it's not something you'd shared explicitly before about your own dad yeah. and how your dad saw success as everything it's the biggest problem for no question we confuse happiness and success can they overlap absolutely yeah but for many of us they're completely separate things which is why we chase the myth of success that society has defined for us we get the job we get the salary we get the house or the holiday whatever are you like well why am i still feeling a void inside right why why is that still going on and you know, dad's story is, you know, dad came to the UK in 1962. So back then, the UK had a shortage of doctors. So they went to recruit 
doctors from the Indian subcontinent. Dad was one of eight. Dad saw this as an opportunity to give his family a better life, more predictability, money, stability. So dad came over, you know, worked super hard, worked like a madman, frankly, if I'm honest, right? And I say that with love for my dad. Like, growing up for 30 years, what dad did, well, first thing is, his speciality was Obs and Ghani. He loved it, right? And here's the thing about that. He never complained to me once until he was on his deathbed. Never wow. once. Dad would train people, right? He was, a, by, I've heard since dad died, again, dad never said this. Colleagues of his said, your dad was a brilliant surgeon. I'm like, what? Dad used to operate. I didn't even know that. Wow. Dad did Obs and Ghani for years. And then essentially what happened is he told me, and you know, you know, I would train the local doctors, I'd teach them how to do stuff. And then a few years later, they were jumping me. This kept happening. And I just knew I was never going to get a promotion. I was never going up the ladder, you know, which is a very common story. You talk to a lot of Indian doctors back in the 60s in the UK, they'll tell you the same story. There was a ceiling in terms of how far you could go. So for his family, for stability to get consultant grade, he moved to a speciality that frankly he didn't enjoy. He didn't want to do, but he did it for his family. And then when he was doing that, he was a consultant in Manchester. He would only sleep three nights a week. So we would do his job, his one job as a consultant. And then four nights a week, dad would do GP night course. I remember dad would come home at about half five or six. Mum would have dinner ready for him. He'd have dinner. Then he'd go up and shave. Then a car would pick him up at seven in the evening. He comes back at about 7 a.m., comes in, has a shower, shaves, has breakfast, and drives into Manchester. Oh, right, he did that for 30 years. I, I don't understand it. How? 30 years. Now, did he earn decent money? Yeah. He sent loads back to his family. Me and my brother had a brilliant education. I had a great start in life in terms of from the outside. Of course, I never saw my dad. Yeah. That was never around. So on the outside, I had a great start. I never saw dads, but I had a great education. And... Dad came down at like 58, 59. I was at uni at the time. This is one of the reasons I still live in the Northwest. I moved back to help look after Dad. So most of my adult life until he died nine years ago was orientated around Dad and caring for him. And, you know, Dad got lupus when he was 58, 59. He, you know, I got a call when I was in, in uni, like out of the blue. Mum said, look, Dad's in intensive care. They're saying he may not make it through the nights. Can you come back? My flatmate drove me back and was like, what is going on? My dad's never been sick before. But he, he got this autoimmune disease called lupus. His kidneys failed. He had 15 years on dialysis. He was chained to a dialysis machine. It was hard. It was difficult for the whole family. He was sick. And it was this myth, right? Dad bought into the myth that that is what success is. That's what I need to chase, right? I've, I've put my kids in private school. I've sent money back. It had an impact on mum and dad's relationship, no question, because mum's by herself most of the time. So, you know, mum's binge-watching soaps, EastEnders, uh, Home and Away, uh, Neighbours, nothing wrong with these soaps, by the way, Brookside, <laughs> Heart to Heart. But no, check this, when we go on holiday, mum would tape every single episode of them so she'd watch them. It's kind of like the equivalent of an addiction to Instagram yeah. or Facebook. Now, it's just the same. It's Distraction. Just, just a different. And so I've realised that... The price dad paid was his health. The happiness myth, the success myth, that killed my dad. I know that, right? I absolutely know that. People say, how do you know? I know it. Talk to mum, talk to my family, you know, and I now know the science, which I didn't know then, yeah. in terms of what chronic stress does to your immune system, what chronic sleep deprivation does, 
right? So I know full well the damage that causes. I'll also come from the other perspective, though, Heffern, and it's really important, that dad did what he thought he had to do, right? So dad leaves his family, his friends, he comes to a different country, knows no one. And you know what? You know, I think they've done a great job. Like, I think me and my brother are pretty nice people. I think we like pretty kind to people. We look after people. I think we're we're trying our best to make the world a better place. So it's not as if I'm saying what he did was wrong. Dad did what he thought he had to do. Yep. But what I want to do is learn from that. Okay, well, I don't need to do what you did, Dad. You've given me opportunity. I don't need to. And if I ever find myself working too hard, which I often do, yep. like, okay, wrong. And here's the thing. Dad did what he had to do. But the tragedy would be if you don't learn from that and you don't take a different path mm. right so that that's dad's story but many people will be uh, listening to this fern and going yeah i'm probably working too hard i'm probably killing it you know i had this patient once 35 year old chap i think this beautifully illustrates this myth right from the outside he's crushing it runs his own business drives a sports car goes on nice holidays right he was working seven days a week he came in to see me he says doc i think i might have depression Right. I've, I've, sometimes I lie in bed in the morning. I don't want to get out. I'm struggling with motivation. He was just going through all these symptoms that are consistent with depression. And I, you know, I checked him out. We did some tests. And as I got to know him and I chatted to him, I said, hey, do you ever hang out with your friends? Right. He, he was quite a lucky guy in the sense that he grew up in the village where he was still working in the kind of town and village where he grew up. So his friends were around. But he never saw them. He actually said to me, well, I kind of see what they're up to on Facebook. Wow. He kind of thought he was keeping in touch. And I, the prescription I gave him, which I appreciate is a bit irregular for a doctor, but I said, okay, listen, what I want you to do is once a week for the next few weeks, I want you to see one of your friends in person and have a conversation with them. He's like, what is that? I said, yeah, just let's try that. I'll give you an appointment now. Try that. See what happens. I can't tell you, Fern, it was like I learned so much with him because he came back six weeks later like a different person, like a different person. And I said, what happened? He goes, look, Doc, I feel great, right? Things just feel completely different. I feel I've got my lust for life back. I said, what did you do? And he said, well, we started off a few of us meeting on a Sunday morning in the local cafe and we chew the fat over a latte. And then a few of us started to get together for a bit of five-a-side once a week. This guy did not have a serotonin deficiency in his body he didn't have an antidepressant deficiency this guy had a friendship a relationship a connection deficiency because he was chasing this idea of success right so all he does is see his mates they thought he was crushing at life they had no idea that he's struggling and it's changed everything and i've seen that over and over again that's core happiness that's core happiness because like again it's that that myth of success like all of us look at successful people and like you give the example in the book of when you were a kid idolizing tiger woods and thinking this guy has it all going yeah. on he's talented he's skillful he's out there people are cheering without knowing all the other stuff going on in his life do you think there's always a trade off with success because i was thinking about this last night if i look at people who are super, super successful, who are absolutely smashing it in every area. And I can even look at my own life. You know, I am yeah. successful in areas of work, but I know my own trade-offs. I, my two priorities are family and work. And they're really, I haven't left much room for anything else. Yeah. And I say I haven't because I've made the choice. I don't see my friends enough. I don't do things for fun enough. Yeah. I put everything Snap. into work and family. And I've sort of made peace with it, but I still think... It doesn't have to stay like that. I, I think that's the key, right? So 
that last thing you just said, it doesn't have to stay there. Let's take the pressure off ourselves, right? This is a journey. It's not a one hit where you find this mythical work-life balance where you've got it all. That, that does, life doesn't work like that. It, for me, it's just about small progress, right? Can I be aware, yeah. recognize that I've made trade-offs? Many people aren't even recognizing uh. that. Recognize that I made trade-offs and then choose some slightly different options tomorrow or the day after or next week. So that's the first thing I'd say. And this other question, you know, then I thought about this so much. Is there a price to pay for success? Now, I think it depends how you define success. Yep. And it also depends in which part of your life you're looking. Let's take sport because you mentioned Tiger. And I think Tiger's a great example. So as a kid, as a teenager, I thought Tiger was amazing. Right? I still do on many levels, to be, to be really clear. I idolized him. As an Indian kid growing up in the northwest of England, right, golf didn't feature anywhere in my radar. I wouldn't be interested in golf. I wouldn't play if this guy didn't exist, right? And many people, lots of immigrants around the world will say the same thing. He just brought it to you in a way that you would never experience otherwise. But you, the problem is with putting people on a pedestal, and I've been super guilty of this in my life, and it's something that I really think hero worship is a massive problem, actually. Yeah. And I think I have been... It's interesting. My wife and I have such different views on this. She's never worshipped heroes. Really? Yeah. I had post. You know, I had a Bon Jovi, bon Jovi John Bon Jovi, life size on my wall, <laughs> right at fourteen or fifteen. So I think we're allowed to idolise him. I think he breaks the rules. <laughs> he breaks the rule. Mm. Well, but I think we worship the wrong heroes in society. So yeah. here's the thing: if I worship Tiger, I think, wow, he's amazing. I think I want to be Tiger Woods when I really don't. Right. First of all, if I want to play golf like him, let's be realistic. I don't have eight hours a day to practice, number one. I don't have the talent that he's got. This is an unachievable um, aspiration, number one. Number two is if you put people on those pedestals, when imperfect humans, like we all are, make mistakes, you know, we, we get all agitated and we just want to attack them and go, you've conned us, you know, this is a myth. Hold on a minute. That happens in football, like every all match. The time. It's a real problem, this, yeah. because actually, let's, let's step back to compassion, if you actually unpicks Tiger's story and his childhoods and the fact that literally since he came out of the womb, he has been trained to be the world's best golfer. His dad would shout racist abuse at him as a five-year-old to train him. He says, son, you're going to get us on the golf course. You have to phase it out. So then people think, oh, he's cold when he does interviews. He doesn't let people know because he's been trained to not let yeah. people in. And then here's the other thing. How many young men at 20 earning the amount of money he was earning, going around the world, probably having people of all walks of life, literally, you know, throwing themselves at him. I'm not just talking about girls, you know, just attention in general. How many people would absolutely behave like a saint? Being like in the public eye is such a mind fuck to use some really yeah. awful language there, but it's the only way that describes it. I don't know how, how anyone stays sane in it. I certainly haven't over the years. So I think it goes back to that, like worshiping people and just going, "Oh, they're amazing." But look at the look at why they're making the choices they're yeah. making when they are not off the pedestal. Look at what is going on around them. It's I, not I, all roses and sunshine. Listen, you know, I grew up in Manchester. We, you know, football was a huge part of you know teenage life. Interesting enough, I've gone to the other extreme now where I don't follow it at all. But I was an addict for years, and I remember, you know. On the Monday, there'd be a headline, and we'd all talk about school. Oh, I can't believe this player's done that. Now I'm like. Man, how immature was I at that time? Of course, young 
players, some people, when they get all this fame, all this money, all this adulation, all this ego elevating behavior around them, of course, some people are going to make mistakes. I'm so we all do. Yeah. And you, <laughs> Whether you, we're you, famous footballer or not, like exactly, we're all going to do and it. So if you're going to worship Tiger, you've got to worship every aspect of yeah. him. You've got to worship the painkiller addiction. You've got to worship the broken marriage. You've got to worship the struggles, right? You can't just take one aspect off him like many of us do. Mm. We think we want to be Tiger. We don't, mm. right? And I, I, you know, Tiger's one of my dream guests to interview. I don't think it will ever happen, but it no, may it, do. Let's make it happen. Let's put it out there into the world. Let's put it out there. Because I find him fascinating. And, you know, I understand certainly a lot of my audience are female. And, you know, I'm sure it's probably the same for you, Fern, I would imagine, or a lot of your audience, I would say. A lot of people get quite triggered when I talk about Tiger, I've noticed, because, you know, what Tiger has been reported to have done you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you're, you're condoning that behavior. I'm not. Frankly, number one... We're looking at human behavior. I'm looking at human behavior. And number one, one of the biggest things that's helped me over last years is I don't judge anymore. And if I catch myself falling into that trap, I pull back going, who the hell am I to judge that person for what he's done? I don't know his life. I know nothing about his life. I don't know the pressures. I don't know what was going on. I'm not going to judge this person based upon headlines that I see, Right. I have compassion for him. I have compassion for his wife. I have compassion for his kids, right? It's not for me to judge. Uh, and I, I do wonder if he could look back now, and I think the same with Michael Jordan. Like when I see Michael Jordan's video, I don't see a happy, content person. I see someone who used every little bit of negativity to turn it around to motivate himself to yeah. be the best. Sure, he was the best. Were they happy? Were they happy? Are they happy? I know loads of very successful people who have a big inkling and not very happy and again people don't necessarily like to hear that like well it's all right for them or whatever but you know and at a point I was seen as very successful on Radio 1 paparazzi following me I was deeply unhappy and it's uncomfortable to people to hear that and I wonder why because I've I still do I have idolized people hugely and I still can have that perspective over certain people in the public eye, whether it's like Meryl Streep, who I just think is untouchable, or Oprah Winfrey. Do you think we do that to keep ourselves smaller? Because we think, oh, well, I could never be like that. They're otherworldly. They're super special. And it stops us from thinking we could ever do anything big, grand or whatever. Yeah, I think it's almost maybe even a protective mechanism on some level but it kind of what you said there was so fascinating it kind of works both ways so when we elevate someone else by default we're lowering us relative to them yeah right when we judge someone else we're doing the opposite we are putting them down to artificially elevate ourselves right so it works kind of both ways and judgment i've realized for most of us if not all of us actually comes from a place of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. Like when we don't feel good in who we are, you know, you it's junk happiness for a short time. Oh, you know, can't believe they behave like that. I can't yeah. believe they did bit that. Bit of a gossip, bit of a bit bitch. Of gossip. Hey, we've all done it. I'm here, we've all done, we've it. all done it. We've all done it. But it doesn't help you. It doesn't feed your core happiness. It feeds junk happiness because by doing that, it's just artificial. It's not long lasting. And if people are thinking, okay, great, right? But what do I do? Do you remember that exercise I did with you when you came on mm. um, my podcast? And I think it's such a simple exercise that really is very, very powerful. And do you mind if I share it? No, like, please do. It's so powerful. I love doing that with you. It was, there's two parts. It's basically how do you, 
how do you start redefining success? Society has defined it for us. How can we redefine it? There's many ways. There's like an identity exercise I think people will find useful. But this one, I think, is, is a great way of looking at the micro, the granular day-to-day stuff, and then kind of pulling out and taking the 30,000-foot view. So the first part is uh, write down your happiness habits. So it's asking people to say, look, what three things could you do this week that really give you that deep feeling of happiness? You know, whatever they are. And I've done this a few times. So mine are spending undistracted time with my family and friends, having some time to engage in a passion, whether that's playing my guitar, whether it's playing snooker, whatever, whatever my passion is, and doing something that helps other people. I've refined this over time. Those are, if I do those three things each week, that really feeds me and who I am. The second part of the exercise is write down your happy ending. So that's basically going to the end of your life, right? Imagine you're on your deathbed. I'd have a think, what are three things that you will want to have done in your life? Again, this has been a process of refining and refining. But for me, it's like I will want to have spent quality time with friends and family. I want to help other people in some way. And I love getting passionate about stuff and doing things and trying to go for mastery and certain things. So I want to have had time to engage in things that I'm truly passionate about. And then what you can do, you go back to the first exercise. Once you know your happy ending, you go, okay, are these three happiness habits, if I do them or I try to do them each week, is that going to get me to my happy ending? Mm. So simple, but it doesn't mean you're going to get it straight away. But it helps to reframe. You go, ah, you know what? I say health is important to me, yet I've had four takeaways this week and I've not had any time to move my body. This is, comes down to alignment as well. You think health is your value, but you're not showing yourself yeah. that it is. You say you value your friends and family. I, I, I can be guilty of this. It's like, well, how much undistracted time did you spend with them this week? And then you can actually refine it further and go, so for me, for example, I sometimes go, okay, this week, if I have five undistracted meals with Vid and the kids, I am meeting, in many ways, that goal of undistracted time with them. Yeah. Right? There's something magical about four. You know, and this is the other thing I've learned, is that a happy life, I really think, ultimately, it's an intentional life. Mm. Right? It's it's allowing you to be present in every moment, getting to that point where you're making the decisions in your life, not the world around you, not the people around you. Is it easy? Absolutely not. Is it worth it? 100% yes. It is. And you said something so important a moment ago, which is whatever that happiness looks like for you, so you are thinking about the end of your life, it's bespoke. Whereas I think the general consensus is, well, we've, it's subliminal, but it's been prescribed to us that it's success, it's it's money, it's having loads of friends and partying or whatever. I mean, my God, I've learned all that the hard way, yeah. that that is not what my happiness looks like. Normally, my happiness is I'm on my own and I'm painting a picture and exactly. I'm literally buzzing with joy. So you have to go inwards to find out what it is. It's a bespoke practice. And I think, you know, how I'd like to sort of round things up is that, this is all totally doable. Your book describes this perfectly and illustrates many very practical things that we can all do, but it does require a bit of work. And yeah. usually we don't want to hear that. We want a quick fix, a new me in January, a quick diet, a quick m- mindfulness exercise, and we're done. And this is a life's work every day. Yeah. yeah. It is unique 
if I just take the first point about the happy ending being unique, which I found that really interesting, of course it is. I think her name is Bronnie Care, is it? Five Regrets of the Dying? I don't know. I, I think you'd love it, Fern. I think the Five Regrets of the Dying, I think she is a palliative care nurse. Okay. And she's been with loads of people wow. on their deathbeds. And there are five common things that she hears, right? I wish I'd worked less. Mm. I'd wish I'd spent more time with my friends and family. I wish I'd had the courage to be myself. I wish I'd had the courage to express my emotions. I wish I'd allowed myself to be happy. Mm. Right? So yes, it's unique to a certain degree, but there are some common themes that people say at the end of their life consistently. Relationships, nurturing those relationships is always there for most people. I wish I'd spent more time with my friends and family. And as I say that, I'm thinking, okay, wrong, and you need to make a few more changes. Yes, same as right? shit. Right, so that's one component. But yes, it does require work. But, you know, I always want to make things feel accessible, right? What we've spoken about today, there's nothing that we've spoken about, if I'm recalling correctly, that costs any money. A lot of what I'm asking, or I'm not even asking, I'm inviting you to consider may help you in your life, doesn't actually take as long as you think, right? There's 10 chapters in the book. Each, each chapter has a principle or a life lesson, not a rule, right? A principle that I'm convinced, because I had to narrow it down from 30 to 10, I was like, you know, how can I get it? What does this hold true for everyone in every situation? And I passionately believe that each of these 10 principles if you start applying them a little bit, they will make you happier than you currently are. Whether you're close to burnout, whether you're stressed out, whether you're tired, you think there's you can't see hope at the moment, or whether you think, you know what, yeah, life's not bad, but I think I could be getting something a bit more out of it than I currently am. And my sort of thought to people is, look, pick one thing, maybe from this conversation, just pick one thing, one little thing that you thought, yeah, you know what, I could do a bit of work there. Maybe it's Choose a happiness story. Every time you get a bit of friction, try it. It really doesn't take long. You could do it in the car, on the train, maybe when the kids have gone to bed, just for five minutes. I promise even that practice alone will start to change things, your energy, how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the world. And it's like this ripple effect, right? Don't try and do it all at once. No. Don't try and suddenly get, right, I got it now. I've cracked happiness. You'll give up on day two. You'll give up on day two. Yeah. Start small, pick one thing, and do it subtly. And you will find in a week, you'll be a subtly different person. In two or three months, you'll be, you'll be transformed. People around you will notice it. And when you feel you're reverting back, don't beat yourself up. Go, yeah. oh, okay, great. What an opportunity. Be curious, right? I've got another opportunity to learn about myself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so it, I'm so passionate about this. I think I'm even more passionate since writing the book. Yeah, I bet. Because... It's not that hard. Curiosity is the coolest thing ever. And I'm naturally a very curious person. I feel very, very lucky for that because life is never boring. Even when it's challenging, even when it's a bit shit, I'm always really curious as to what might happen next or what is just going to be thrown my way. And I think curiosity just keeps you excited about life, even when you're feeling a bit shit. So I definitely think curiosity is a really underrated thing to tap into yeah. I love it you know at the start we mentioned meaning and purpose can I just close that loop yeah because I I really feel I've seen so many things recently about meaning and purpose it's not about happiness it's about meaning I was trying to crack this when I was coming up with a call happiness so I thought how does this fit in and where I've come to Fern is that 
Meaning and purpose is an important ingredient for happiness, but it's not happiness in and of itself, right? So you could have meaning and purpose in your job, right? You could love your job. You could be everything you've wanted, but the cost of doing that might be that you're working too hard, you're stressing too much, and you are sacrificing things that are important to you, like your partner or your kids or your relationships, right? Okay, you've got meaning and purpose in your life, but maybe some of the other legs of that stool are getting damaged at the same yeah. time, right? You can make the case that, um, you know, I don't mean to say something controversial to trigger people, like, but I feel you could make the case that a soldier fighting in World War II against the Nazis, so someone might make the case, actually, they were leading a life of meaning, but I'm not sure that means they were happy. No, absolutely right? not. So it's an ingredient, and, the, and where the core happiness stool fits in here, it's about alignment, mm. Right? It comes under alignment. Have you heard of the concept of Ikigai? No. The Japanese concept. Yo, you would love it. I'm going to send you a book on Ikigai. I think okay. you're going to really like it. But I, I, it's this idea, this, in this Japanese cultural idea that what we uh, should be looking for comprises of four things. Something that we're good at. Something that the world needs. Something that we enjoy. And something that makes us money. Right? These four things. I thought, that is the coolest thing ever. I love that. I want a bit of ikigai in my life. Yeah, I love that. Right? But here's the thing. I wrote about it in uh, my second book, The Stress Solution. And I remember being on stage in London, talking about the book. And there was a Q&A at the end. And I, I remember this so well. Back right of the hall, uh, this lady had a hand up. And, um, you know, I, I gestured to her. And she said, hey, Dr. Chastity, I'm an 18-year-old Japanese student. I live in London now. I grew up with this concept of ikigai. And frankly, I found it demoralizing and off-putting. I found it too high a bar to get. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. That's what I consider to be an amazing concept. But she thinks it's off-putting. It's a pressure. It's a pressure. Oh, man, I don't have my ikigai. Yeah. What am I doing? And so I thought, okay, Rongan, how can you tackle that? And again, this is what I love about writing. You have to order your thoughts. You have to figure out a way to make these ideas mm. work. All your ideas not good enough. And it comes under alignment, Right. How do you know what your meaning and purpose is? It's all very well if you found it, but if you're working in a call center at the moment, you don't like your job and you're like, what are you talking about, mate? Like, this is how I pay the bills, yeah. right? Go back to values, right? This is the, in, there's an exercise in the book about this around alignment, right? Figure out what your values are. For me, my three core values as I sit here today recording with you are integrity, compassion, and curiosity. I don't identify anymore as a, a doctor or as a even as a as a father, because when we cling too hard to these identities, they become limits on I think what we can do. Like, if if you think if I think for example I'm a doctor, right? That's who I am. It's not who I am. It's a role that I play. Yeah. Right. Subtle difference. Very very important because what happens if I get fired? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if I get sick and can't work? Yeah. Who am I? Who am I? Right. And we see this when people retire. Yeah. So. It, those values can hold true for me in every interaction. And for that mythical person in the call center, let's say kindness is one of your values. That's how you do the exercise. You go, yeah, kindness is really important to me. Okay, you may not like your job currently, but if on the way to work, you are kind to the barista who serves you your coffee, if you are kind to the bus driver who takes you to work, if you are kind to your work colleagues, you may not like your job, but I would argue you are leading a meaningful life. You are living in accordance with your values. And the more you do that, the more things will start to change. You will find that better job, that one that nourishes you more. But it comes down to values. Once you start living in alignment, meaning and purpose are 
natural consequences of that. The consequences. Do you know what I mean? Did that make sense? It does. I think you summarised it perfectly by saying their consequences because when we sort of strive for them initially, it's confusing. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is me? What is meaning? Yeah. What? But if they're if they subsequently happen because of your actions and your alignment, bingo. Yeah. Bingo. I think you've just summed up life, Rongan. It's taken me a few years, but in, in my 40s, I feel like I'm learning maybe some lessons that are helping me, and I hope they might help other people. No, you are. It's what you're doing all the time, and it's why we've struck up a friendship and why I love talking to you, whether it's podcast territory or on voice note which is our favorite medium it really is. to have a discussion because we can really go granular on voice note and like unpick life and i feel very lucky to be able to do that whenever i please whether you like it or not you no, get voice notes. <laughs> but thank you so much this is again i know you were excited to release this book because it felt sort of I guess boundary pushing for you in a sense. It's it's something that you desperately needed to write that wasn't something you could have done five years ago. Yeah. So it's a brave book and people need to read this. I took so much from it. As you can see, my notepad is absolutely <laughs> rammed with things that I've written, not just for this, but for me to go back over just day to day. It's absolutely beautiful and I've loved talking to you today. Fern, I so, so enjoyed our conversation. And before we finish, I would just want to acknowledge you because... I think you're a really special person. I think what you give to the world, the way you post about things with authenticity, the way you share your struggles, the things that you've gone through, the way that you curate this and the festival, I think it's having an impact on so many people. I think it's what the world needs. And I think it's really incredible what you're doing. What a blimmin' special man he is. Thank you, Rongan. I'm so glad we got to have that chat and deeply grateful that we are mates. I'm sure you can only imagine how long our voice notes back and forth are to each other. We were actually voice noting this morning and I thought I'd left quite a quick voice note. It was five minutes long. That's potentially annoying. Anyway, it's too late. I press send. Rongan's book, Happy Mind, Happy Life, 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day is out now. And if you want to learn a bit more about what might be causing some of our destructive behaviours, do listen back to the Happy Place episode with Dr Pippa Grange. She went into such brilliant detail about how fear can run the show without us even realising. There will, of course, be a new episode next week. I'm back again. You cannot get rid of me. So make sure you're following Happy Place on your podcast app of choice so you can be back for that one. Until then, thank you so much again to Rongan, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you, you beautiful lot. I bloody love you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com